0: Welcome to Talkcast, and for a reaction episode. If you're watching this on YouTube, then perhaps the thumbnail will give you some indication of what this episode is about. Among my most popular episodes are the ones where I take some other podcast and react to what has been said in that particular podcast. Indeed, my most watched video ever was where I reacted to the podcast that Sam Harris did with David Deutsch, or the second one they did anyway. I've reacted to things that Joe Rogan has said. I've reacted to things that Jordan Peterson and Dave Rubin have said. I've reacted to Euron Brook and Sam Harris on other occasions as well. And so this continues along that theme. I've chosen this one in particular for two reasons. One, I listened to the entire Lex Fridman and Sam Harris second conversation myself, just off my own back. No one prodded me to do it. It was four and a half hours long. I mean... That's even longer than the kind of thing that Joe Rogan does, and Joe Rogan does epically long podcasts. So the first thing I have to do is to compliment both Lex and Sam for their endurance. I don't think I could do something like that. If nothing else, their bladders deserve praise. Uh, How they sat there for that long, I don't know. Perhaps they took a break. I didn't see any cuts in the video, but that said, there were times when I was only listening, so perhaps I missed the cuts. Perhaps they did take a break. Four and a half hours sitting in one place just talking. (laughs) Amazing. I've had multiple requests from fans to react to different parts of the podcast. In particular, their stuff about AGI and AI. But lately, I've been saying so much on that topic, in particular on AirChat, Naval Ravikant's new app. Try and get a hold of that AirChat, which is spelled just the way it sounds. Here's the icon. Get AirChat by searching on Google. And you can hear myself and Naval and lots of other people talking about... Lots of these topics, all the topics that I talk about on TopCast all of the time, now it's an ongoing conversation there, so I would urge people to, if you'd like to, get involved, get air chat. So there's that. So that fact alone means, not that I'm tired of the AI-AGI debate that goes on seemingly continuously on Twitter now, but I think I've said enough for the moment. And there are a lot of parts of this conversation between Sam and Lex that I could respond to, but instead... I've chosen a very esoteric part right near the end. And uh, this has all sorts of liabilities, I suppose. One, they've been talking already for four hours, so I'm sure they're both becoming tired by this point. And so perhaps their thinking is starting to slow down a little. Sam already is extremely deliberate and rather ponderous in the way that he speaks. You know, that's a great thing. He carefully considers what he's going to say. He's slow under normal circumstances, but I can imagine after four hours he's going to slow down even further, and he seems to. <laughs> and so perhaps I'm being unfair in reacting to this part because it seems like he's getting he might be getting mentally tired, is what I'm saying. So we have to keep that in mind as I respond to what is being said here. I've picked a section that runs for about 20 minutes, but I'm certainly not going to get through the entire 20 minutes. They're talking about possibility. And actuality. They're touching on free will, they're touching on the many worlds. They're talking about all the things, the problems I should say, that a theory of philosophy and physics like constructor theory would solve for them, as would an understanding, appreciation of, or endorsement of the Everettian interpretation of quantum theory, otherwise known as the many worlds interpretation. They deny the facility of this particular interpretation, they deny the facility of that understanding of quantum theory. And so therefore, the conversation becomes confused. And so what I want to do is to listen to what they say in their own words. So I'm not going to be putting words in their mouth. This is what Sam thinks. This is what Lex thinks. No, you can hear what they say. I'm not not summarizing them. I'm not paraphrasing them. Here they are in their own words. And I'm going to set that aside. My understanding, mind you, this is my understanding, and, and errors are my own as always, of how the multiverse can solve these problems. And also, the deeper theory still, should it become a fully-fledged theory of physics, constructor theory, is really the way to go to understand the nature of possibility in the physical world. So without any further introduction, let's just dive straight in. And for a bit of context, they're partway through, well, actually coming to the tail end of, the conversation they had about free will proper. And Interestingly enough, I'm ignoring most of that. And the reason I'm ignoring most of that is because, again, just like the AI, AGI thing, I've said so much on TopCast about this before that my previous resources exist there if you want to know my views on this. I will be nonetheless touching on free will as they get to it in a sort of summary type way, a summary of my own perspective. But for the full perspective Those videos and podcasts are already out there, and my blog posts on this are extensive, and I've written and spoken a lot about this, so let's not spend too much time on that. But we're picking it up where Sam segues from a discussion about free will into this notion of voluntary and involuntary behavior, and then we get into possibility, actuality, and probability. So here's Sam and Lex.
1: Again, even when you're doing things, this does not negate the difference between voluntary and involuntary behavior. It's like I can voluntarily reach for this, but when I'm paying attention, I'm aware that everything is just happening. Like just Mm -hmm. the intention to move is just arising, right? And I'm in no position to know why it didn't arise a moment before or a moment later or a moment, or, or, or you know, 50 percent stronger or weaker or you know so as to be ineffective or to be doubly effective where i lurched for it versus i move slow i mean not I'm, I'm not i can never run the counterfactuals i can never I mean, all, all of this opens the door to a, a an even more disconcerting picture along the same lines which is subsumes this conversation about free will and it's the question of whether
0: Anything is ever possible. So let's deal with this issue of voluntary and involuntary behaviour. This is part of Sam Harris's conception of the non-existence of free will. He says the free will doesn't exist, but we can still engage in voluntary behaviours and involuntary behaviours. Also, there are choices in the world on Sam's account. Also... As a matter of subjective experience, he says, there is no self. So we have to keep all of that in mind. So, my what I hear when Sam says what he said just then about voluntary and involuntary behavior is that he doesn't always know why he does a thing that he does. Okay. He can't give an explicit account of why he always does what he does, or indeed how he does it picking something up he says is a mystery to him at times so there are things he does not know about his own behavior but what i want to say is one's ignorance or one's professed ignorance on any matter is no proof that one is not creative or creatively generating choices or as i say has free will it just means you don't know something and this distinction between voluntary and involuntary so voluntary means Nothing or no one is forcing Sam to do a particular thing. But if he's not being forced, then what entity is doing the action, performing the action? Him, but he has no self. Simultaneously, Sam wants to say, so he voluntarily can do something, but also as a matter of subjective experience, there is no self the self is an illusion. So it can't be himself making the movement. So what is? Well, let's try and steel man this. He says that the intention to move just arises. Okay, but where does that arise? I would say it arises within oneself. What else might happen if the intention doesn't arise? Should the intention always be there if it's not going to arise? So it seems like Intentions are real, and Sam agrees with this, and the intention arises, but he doesn 't know how or why the intention arises, and this leads him to think that free will doesn 't exist because the intention arises he can 't give an account for that, therefore he 's not responsible for the intention arise he didn 't choose for the intention to arise, therefore he 's not freely choosing the intention, but that 's just to say he doesn 't know why the intention arose, but again, that is not proof that the intention is not just him doing something. It's not a proof that the intention is not his, that he himself is having the intention just because he, Sam Harris, cannot provide an account for it. There might be a deeper explanation of what's going on, and if you delved into it, perhaps by exploring one's subconscious, you could figure out an explanation for the intention arising. But then, of course, he would say, well, those subconscious by very definition, are not part of you, your intentions. You didn't choose those, therefore you don't have any free will. But I want to say the subconscious is also part of you, what you are, on my account of what you are, a mind, a creative mind. And you can't give a holistic account, a full account, a complete account of what's going on in your mind. Some of it is opaque to you, but that doesn't mean it's not part of you. You just might not be conscious of it. Our minds can be mysterious to us. We create knowledge after all, and this act of creation is something we do not understand well. Inspiration. We don't understand it. Why are we inspired to do a particular thing at times? Motivation. We're motivated to do some things and bored about other things and not motivated to do them. Curiosity. Curious about some things and not about others. We're very different in this respect. We don't understand at times why these Feelings arise within us, but they do arise within us, and I would say they're part of us. Kind of defining characteristics of what it is to be an individual agent in the world. These things are part of what makes up ourselves. Of course, I say an important part of defining ourselves is the fact that we are universal explainers, but that's more about defining what a person is as distinct from any other entity in the universe. You yourself are distinct from other people, not only because you're spatially located in a different place, but also because of these intentions, your curiosities, your motivations, your interests, what you find fun, and all that sort of stuff that makes up your personality, your very person, your mind, what you are. You exist as a self. And as I say... In other moods, and you hear Sam talk about free will, he does say that choice is there in the world, choice exists, and choice is real. But I want to ask, who or what does the choosing? If the self doesn't exist, if you don't exist, then it can't be you, this non-existent thing, making the choice. So what does? The laws of physics? The outworkings of the laws of physics? Neural firings? Now it's all reductive. It's a kind of justificationist foundationalism. If he, Sam, does not know the answer to something about his mind, he wants to put it down to, well, that's just proof I have no control over the thing and therefore there's no free will. But we have intentions to do stuff all the time and then we change our minds. We change them. But he would say we don't choose to change our minds. Yet I think we do because we create knowledge of something better. Of course, he would deny that We do any such thing, because strictly on his account, we don't exist. It's just, as I say, neural firings. But I want to say that this, in a sense, is what we are. This is the self. This neural firing, if you like, is one description at one level of what a mind is. I think it's the wrong level of analysis. It's kind of a physicalism, because a more parsimonious way to speak about all this is just to say, we are minds, creative explainers and minds can be represented in brains as neural firings. In fact, it's the only minds that we know of right now. Let's continue with the conversation. Like, what if this is a question I, I haven't
1: thought a lot of about it, but it's been a few years I've been kicking this question around. Um, so I mean, what if only the actual is possible? What, if, what if there is. What if, so we live with this feeling of possibility. We live with a sense that, let me take it, so you know, I have two daughters. I could have had a third child, right? So what does it mean to say that I could have had a third child? Right? Or so is "Do you, you don't have kids, I don't think. No, so,
2: not that I know of. Yes. So but the possibility might be right.
1: there. So what do we mean when we say you could have had a child? or you might you you might have a child in the future like what 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 is the space in reality what's the relationship between possibility and actuality and reality is there a reality in which
0: non-actual things are nonetheless real okay so i think he begins strongly there but then he confuses himself Yes, it's true, from an objective God's eye view in some sense, only the actual ever happens. But for a person, for an individual person, for a subject, from the perspective of that person, or an observer if you like, only a tiny sliver of the possibilities are ever experienced, or we might say actualized in their lives, what the laws of physics permit, but... What the laws of physics permit happens somewhere. But there is a caveat here, and well, let me go through this, and i'll I'll explain this at some length. Errors my own, as always. I may be stepping too far in particular areas. I'm not saying at all, as always that David Deutsch would endorse any of this or Chiara Maletto or any genuine expert in constructor theory, or David Wallace, an expert in an understanding of Everettian quantum theory. So take this as a layperson interested in this particular stuff, explaining their understanding of the place of possibility and the possibility of free will in a reality governed by quantum theory. Vanilla quantum theory. I'll use my trope example the kind of trope example that annoys everyone, and, but whatever, okay, it is, it's useful, people get it. If you've got two drinks before you, and you want to have one of them, and your choice is tea and coffee, and you only choose one of them, you don't take both of them. Well, it really is the case that according to physics, quantum physics, if you like, uh, unitary quantum mechanics, the unitary quantum mechanics just says that if the formalism says that a thing happens, then it happens. Or some call it the Everettian interpretation. They might be subtly different. Anyway, the quantum multiverse, the many worlds, according to quantum mechanics, the most vanilla version with no added assumptions about collapse or whatever. According to this theory, if you're like me, then in most of the time you choose tea. And when that choice is offered to you, you know, tea or coffee, you go, I would rather have tea. So on quantum mechanics. The whole of physical reality really does partition itself into what we call measures, different proportions. Say, and I'm making up these numbers, but they make the point. Because I'm generally a person who chooses tea, then when offered tea and coffee, in 90% of the universes, 90% of the multiverse, where this choice is happening, where I exist, then in 90%, Physical reality that becomes a place where I've had tea in 9.99999999. Imagine those nines go on for about 100 decimal places percent. That's where I have coffee. Now we've got a missing amount 0.000000. Imagine 100 zeros and then one percent. That tiny, tiny fraction is where something genuinely bizarre happens. In fact, it might be more than 100 zeros, maybe a 1,000, maybe 10,000. A tiny, tiny fraction. Barely worth worrying about except that it actually happens. What is that something bizarre? Consistent with the laws of physics. Actually happens. Could possibly happen, therefore actually happens somewhere in the multiverse. Well, this is where the weird thing happens. The weird thing is you're offered tea, you're offered coffee, you take tea because you're normally a person who takes tea. 90% of the universe is like that and... Almost 10%, but not quite, of the other universes, you have coffee. But that missing amount, that tiny, tiny fraction, is where the weird thing happens, like the coffee, or the tea, rather, one of them, turns into Coca-Cola, and you get neither tea or coffee, or it turns into orange juice, or it turns into a rabbit that hops away, or I turn into a rabbit, or something else, just as bizarre, happens, because of the The motion of particles by chance doing something exceedingly unlikely, but nevertheless possible. And the possible here is actual, as strange as that sounds. But it's considerably less strange than your consciousness controls physical reality at the quantum level. And so a special kind of physics is required to explain your mind and your observations, causing physical reality to have the form that it does. I find that far more bizarre. And another aside on this while we're at it, if during reaching for my tea, I have a thought, I I think I'm going to play a little joke here, and I say abracadabra over my tea and coffee before I pick them up, then in almost all of the universes of the same proportion just as before, in 99.9999999% you know, a thousand nines after that percent, absolutely nothing unusual happens. I say abracadabra and nothing happens. Why should it? Magic doesn't work. But in 0.000000, you get my point, 1,000 zeros, 1% of universes. After I say abracadabra, something weird happens. Orange juice appears that wasn't there before, or the tea turns into a rabbit, or the coffee does, whatever. Something really bizarre happens immediately after I say abracadabra. Well, okay. Now, to me or anyone watching me, it might seem as if I've just performed literal magic, but I haven't. My saying abracadabra and the tea spontaneously turning into orange juice or whatever else weird thing happened, those two things had nothing to do with one another. The magic words did not cause the change in the tea to orange juice. And I can test this simply by just saying abracadabra again in an attempt to change the orange juice, let's say, back to tea. And guess what? Nothing will happen. Nada. I can stand there the rest of my life saying abracadabra and nothing will happen. And across the multiverse, the same is true, again, in 99.9% no, 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 of the universes. But once more, once more, again, having just said abracadabra over this tea-coffee situation, and one of them turns into orange, and there's 0.000, 000 you know, 1, 000 zeros, 1% of the universes. The second time I do it, in exactly the same proportion of universes, on the second time around, nothing happens, but in no 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 1,000 times percent, Two times in a row, you get orange juice. You get something weird happen the second time you say abracadabra. The probability of that happen is the probability, the thousand 0.0, 000 zeros, 1%, multiplied by 0.001%. <laughs> you get my meaning. It's, an, it's getting even more unlikely, more ridiculously unlikely, that each time I say abracadabra, following that, something weird happens. And so it goes. It would appear that if you have these sequence of coincidences... Magic appears to work, but it doesn't. It only appears to. And actually, by the way, this sequence of coincidences does not count as a universe because these things are not causally connected. This is not what we regard a universe as being, a consistent history. This is not a history. This is an extremely unusual sequence of coincidences that can't be explained except by being a sequence of coincidences, which is not what history is about. (laughs) History is about one thing causing another, having good explanations for things. And this is the only good explanation there is sequence of coincidences. Not that magic exists. Not that every time Brett says abracadabra, uh, tea turns into orange juice and orange juice turns back into tea or whatever the abracadabra appears to be doing something weird. Those situations basically infinitesimally happen. Almost never happen. It's a sharply tapering measure of the multiverse where the events aren't causally connected, as I say. This sequence of remarkable coincidence is a sequence of among the least likely things in existence. Possible according to the laws, actual, therefore, somewhere in the multiverse, but of vanishingly tiny proportion of the whole. And each time the magic words appear to do something, the next time they are said in the overwhelming majority of universes afterwards, nothing special happens happens. But on the other hand, when we humans actually cause stuff to happen, like when we create knowledge, explanatory knowledge, crucially, and the knowledge is something like scientific knowledge, then the measure of universes where that thing happens grows across the multiverse. It gets replicated. It's not a tiny proportion of universes, for example, where Newtonian physics and rockets are found, but a growing proportion. Newton's discovery causes many things to happen, such as or people rocketing their way to the moon, let's say, and reliably so. Each time a rocket aims for the moon, it gets there rather a lot of the time. And the more rockets aim for the moon, the more get there over time as well because of error correction and knowledge creation and knowledge growth, both in our part of the multiverse and the multiverse as a whole. This is; These are universes. This is precisely the opposite to the situation where magic words are said over the T and it turns into orange juice situation. In both cases, something possible is happening and is actual, but only in one of them does the proportion of the multiverse grow. In the other, it tapers off to nothingness. Now, at this point, to many people, the account I have just given seems so fantastic, and I agree, it is fantastic, but it seems so fantastic that it could not possibly be true. But here we just have to appeal to the fallacy of incredulity. Your thinking it's too amazing to be true is not a refutation of the fact that it is. Flat earthers find it fantastic that the world is approximately spherical. Creationists find it fantastic that the simple process of evolution by natural selection can cause, over millions of years, human beings to descend from monkeys, so to speak, and monkeys from bacteria. Our deepest theories are counterintuitive, and your inability to imagine how it could be so is not a refutation of the fact that it is so. Everything possible is actual. But this is not the same as saying that only the actual is possible. Not the same at all. In some universe, of the same proportion as the tea turning into the oranges kind, a child scribbling what they think of as pretty lines on paper actually ends up writing down the successor theory to quantum theory and general relativity, or at least symbols representing it by chance. I'll have more to say on this particular example at a later date, but to my mind, the child has not just spontaneously generated knowledge. No one knows it. Only if someone was to come along and understood what was written there, which happens in some tiny proportion of universes, would that count as knowledge, not created by the child on the paper, but in the mind of the person interpreting what they see. And so, nothing is violated there in terms of knowledge generation. But I'll come back to that one because it's an interesting case. Okay, back to Sam and Lex now.
1: And so, there, we have other categories of like non-concrete things. We have things that don't have spatial temporal dimension, but they're nonetheless, they, they, they nonetheless exist. So, like, you know, in the integers, right? So,
0: numbers. The reality of abstractions. So this would be this part of sam's discussion would be so well informed by the beginning of infinity the chapter on the reality of abstractions or chapter 10 of the the, the fabric of reality on the nature of mathematics this kind of thing would um yeah enhance what he is saying here because it gets a little confused but you no know, let's listen to what he says
1: there's a there's a reality. There's an abstract reality to numbers, and this is it's philosophically interesting to think about these things. So they're not like, in some sense, they're 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 real, and they're they're not not merely invented by us. They're discovered because they have structure that we can't impose upon them. Right? It's not like they're not fictional characters like you know, I mean, Hamlet and and Superman also exist in some sense, but they exist at the level of of our own fiction and, and abstraction, but it's like they're true they're true and false statements you can make about Hamlet. They're true and false statements you can make about Superman because our fiction the fictional worlds we've created have a certain kind of structure, but again, this is all abstract. it's it, like it's all abstractable from any of its concrete instantiations. It's not just in the comic books and just in the movies. It's in our you know ongoing ideas about these characters but na- natural numbers or or um. The integers don't function quite that way. I mean, they're similar, but they also have a structure that's purely a matter of discovery. It's not, you can't just make up whether numbers are prime. You know, if you give me two integers, you know, of, of a certain size, to, let's see, you, you mentioned two enormous integers. If I were to say, okay, well, between those two integers, there are exactly 11 prime numbers, right? That's a very specific claim about which I can be right or wrong. Whether or not anyone knows I'm right or wrong. Right. It's like that's just there's a domain of facts there, but these are abstract it's an abstract reality that relates in some way that's philosophically interesting, you know, metaphysically interesting to what we call real reality, you know, this the spatial temporal order, the physics of things.
0: Okay. As I say, by this time in the interview, the discussion between the two of them. Sam's been talking for four hours, which I regard as heroic. (laughs) It seems like there were no breaks, as I say. I'm not sure. Anyways, real reality, he says, real reality. I think this is confusing. What he means is physical reality. Uh, There's no real reality, just reality, okay? And it has physical parts and it has abstract parts. So there's a physical reality and there's abstract reality. There would be no abstract reality, on my view, without a physical reality, of some kind. Okay, that said. We'll get into that debate at some point. Nevertheless, you can consider something like my go-to example here is just the number two. You could write down the numeral for two, or you could write four over two or five minus three or fourteen pi over seven pi. You could go on forever like this, writing down different symbols, instantiations, representations, numerals. They all represent the number, the number two. Those representations are physical. Pixels on the screen at the moment. So when I say five minus three, you're hearing sound waves representing the number two. I can't write down the number two. I can only write down symbols, numerals. The number itself is the thing that we abstract out from those representations, So you're looking at all these things and the thing that is common between them is the abstract number two. And it's not physical. It's independent of any and all of them. So where is that number? If it exists, if it's real, where is it? Well, that's the wrong question. It demands a spatiotemporal answer. It's asking for where in space is this thing or where in time is this thing? It's nowhere in space and time. It's an abstraction. It occupies an abstract space of numbers, which is not a place in space or located a moment in time. It just is. And when we start talking about space in this way, well, we've got a bit of an issue because is the physical space really analogous to this abstract space? Are we just using this word space to indicate all of this variety of stuff? The physical space is just a whole sequence of points, if you like, infinitely many, a continuum. But the space of numbers is not like that. (laughs) So we've got a problem with language here. Nevertheless, abstractions are real. In what sense are they real? Well, you abstract them out from the physical instantiation of stuff. Some of them have this weird existence, you know, like the next highest prime number, as I keep saying, hasn't been discovered yet. There's only a highest prime number known at the moment, but the other one. All the other ones that are high, the, 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 the higher than it, bigger than it, uh, exist. But where? Well, they're yet to be found. We're yet to instantiate them. But they exist in abstract space. Okay, let's keep going.
1: But possibility, at least in my view, occupies a different space. And, and this is something, again, I my thoughts on this are pretty inchoate. And I, I, I think I need to talk to a philosopher of physics and, and, and or a physicist about how this may interact with, with things like the many worlds interpretation of quantum yeah, like
0: mechanics? So that's- yes, possibly, but he doesn't need to talk. He could just read the books that are out there on this. The Science of Can and Can't, for example, would be a way to go, And beginning of infinity. Listen to David's lecture, especially the one on probability. What he says is, possibility, at least in my view, quote, okay, from that audio snippet there, but that's a little bit like saying evolution in my view or Pythagoras' theorem in my view. But to be fair, okay, (laughs) I get people all the time telling me, well, quantum mechanics, in my view, can't be about parallel universes. Okay, or at least words to that effect, anyway. I want to say in return to them and retort, you know, that fossils, in my view, aren't about dinosaurs. What do you think about that? But in those moments, you know, usually you just (laughs) you've got to shrug or uh, you have to figure out to yourself whether the avenue seems promising to pursue in explaining it a little bit further. Uh, People making errors like this is no sin but I suppose trying to explain to someone a phenomena they've already seemed to have indicated that they're not going to be moved on, and that might be a sin. <laughs> Let's get going.
2: It's an interesting, right? Right. Exactly. Right. So uh, I wonder if discoveries in physics, like further proof or more concrete proof that many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics has some validity. Right. If that completely starts to change things. <laughs>
0: You know what I'm going to say. I mean, <laughs> everything is helped by better philosophy. It really is. It clarifies things. You know, like how much <laughs> how much evidence do you want? What does concrete proof mean, firstly? Concrete proof of the many worlds interpretation. Why is it held to a standard different to every other theory? Well, we know why, because of bad philosophy. Chapter 11, I think, at the beginning of infinity. <laughs> Perhaps he just means evidence. He wants more evidence. So... Uh, what do we need, though? Well, perhaps we need AGI, able to perform interference experiments in their own brains. You know, see this video, my discussion of this from uh, the beginning of Infinity series, the, 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 the multiverse uh, section of that. Perhaps we need universal quantum computers whose computations and calculations and actions could not possibly be explained without recourse to a multiverse, a much vaster ensemble of reality, physical reality, than exists in the universe we do observe, so to speak. I mean, look, Fred Hoyle, the the genius of Fred Hoyle, one of the greatest astrophysicists of all time, held out until the end on the Big Bang, and he was more than equipped to understand the theory and concrete proof of it. Creationists are forever demanding more concrete proof of Darwinism. Each time we find a missing link, well, they think we've just created two more gaps in the fossil record, of course. (laughs) So there are ways that people can keep on denying reality if you're really committed to it which many physicists seem to be and so even though you've got you know famous you know, you know famous people who've got uh, more fame uh, than than David Deutsch like Sean Carroll explaining you know the many worlds reasonably well in places like Joe Rogan still you know, people are not willing to listen <laughs> I don't know why what more concrete proof <laughs> if that's what you're looking for do you need but even that, that's just more actuality. Uh, yes and no. That's even more just actuality. Objectively, it is. Subjectively, it's not. So what I mean by that is if you had the God's eye view, then possibility in the multiverse, there is no possibility. Everything that happens actually happens. Everything that could happen happens. But for a subject, a person experiencing stuff, observing what's going on, they can't observe the entirety of the multiverse. They, they observe their narrow sliver. And so what they experience is one narrow possibility of all the possibilities that are experienced by copies of themselves. This all takes care of a certain kind of counterfactual about you. Namely, you could have done otherwise because in some universes... Copies of you did do otherwise. They aren't you. I don't regard them as you. You are your conscious self, consisting of infinitely many fungible instances of yourself. What does it feel like to be infinitely many copies of yourself? Well, just the way it feels right now. And they're differentiating as choice exists in the universe. And as you make choices to do stuff, you uh, differentiate. Let's keep going. So if, if I took
1: that seriously... Ah, uh, sure. <laughs> that's, that's a case of... And the truth is that happens even even if the the many worlds interpretation isn't true, but we just imagine we have a physically infinite universe. The implication of infinity is such that things will begin to repeat themselves.
0: Uh, Yes and no, again. Um, Sam makes this point rather often. I've heard other philosophers make this point as well. Uh, But that claim requires an additional substantive assumption about what the nature of physical reality is. Just given that the universe is spatially infinite, that, just that fact tells you nothing about that space. You have to add stuff to your spatially infinite universe, namely that it's filled with matter, roughly like the matter that's in our region of this infinite space, which is tiny, of course. Everything's tiny compared to infinity. So you, you would need to say something like, well, the universe is homogeneous and isotropic, roughly speaking. But why think that? How do you know that? Well, you know, you can just add that in. It could be the case, though, if you've got this spatially infinite universe. There's a lot of ways... There's an infinite number of ways of having an, an infinite in size universe. An infinite number of ways to have such a universe. And one of them happens to be homogeneous and isotropic everywhere, okay? It's the same at all points and the same in all directions. Maybe it's like that. But why think that? What's the scientific reason for thinking that? It could just be that the distant universe is just very different. The further you get away from here, the more and more different it becomes. Maybe it's all hydrogen gas expanding at an extremely fast rate, so fast that the hydrogen gas cannot coalesce into stuff. We know the universe is expanding, and expanding at an accelerating rate, that's the best understanding we have at the moment. And if that's true, well, the infinite, infinitely far from here, it's being ripped apart. The, the, it's not like you're going to encounter copies of yourself. If it is all hydrogen gas out there, we're just an island of complexity. So it doesn't follow, no. You have to add to your infinite universe the fact that whatever kind of infinity it is, everything that can possibly happen does happen. But who knows what obtains beyond what we can see or what we have evidence of, or even can have evidence of. This is metaphysics again, whereas the quantum multiverse is plain old vanilla physics (laughs) It really is. You know, the farther you go in space, right? So,
1: you know, if you you just head out in one direction, eventually you're going to meet two people just like us having a conversation just like this, and you're going to meet them an infinite number of times in every, you know, infinite variety of permutations, slightly different from this conversation, right? So, I mean, infinity is just so big that our intuitions of probability completely break down. But what I'm suggesting is maybe probability isn't a thing.
0: Infinity is so big, our, our intuitions about probability completely break down. Well, there are many kinds of infinity. That's the first thing to say. You know. a, a spatially infinite universe that is empty of matter is one thing. One that's filled with matter is another. What kind of matter? Okay. Is it expanding? What effect does that have? Would it preclude you know, complex molecules forming in certain regions of this spatially infinite universe? There's a lot of stuff you need to add to this. But he does conclude there Okay, uh, just, let's just recap what he said. What I'm suggesting is maybe probability isn't a thing, right? <laughs> well, welcome to the club, Sam. <laughs> so I don't know if he's seen David Deutsch's lecture on probability or my videos on his lecture, um, but that's you know, David's conclusion, and I tend to agree. It's not uh, Probability is not a physical theory. Indeed, if what actually happens just happens then it never probably happens. If everything that happens happens, it doesn't probably happen. There's no sense in which it probably happens. So what is the place for probability there? Well, the only place for it then is that subjectively we have ignorance and therein you get what's called the decision-theoretic argument where you say, well, subjectively, as a matter of being a person. If you need to decide on something or make a guess, make a prediction about what might happen, then the only thing to do is to approximate what's going on with probabilities, all the while recognizing it's not true in the same way that Newton's theory of gravity is just not true, but it can help you with certain stuff. It can help you get to the moon even. The fact is that in our physical reality, everything just happens and probability does not obtain. It's not a thing that governs the universe in other words.
1: Right, maybe there's only actuality. Maybe there's only what happens and at every point along the way, our notion of what could have happened or what might have happened is just that—it's just a thought about what could have happened or might have happened.
2: There's no, so it's a fundamentally different thing. If you can imagine a thing, that doesn't make it real. So they, because that's that's where that possibility exists. It's in your imagination, right? Yeah, bit. and
1: and possibility itself is a kind of spooky idea because it it too has a sort of structure, right? So like if I if I'm going to say. you know, you could have had a daughter, right, last year. Um, so we're saying that's that's possible, but not actual, right? That is a claim. Of, th- there are things that are true and not true about that daughter, right? Like, it, it has a kind of structure. It's like...
0: So you can see Sam thinking through this in depth, in real time. I think if one's thoughts are more coherent, which is to say one understands a thing, you don't do that quite so obviously, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Sam already speaks slowly and deliberately, but if you do understand some explanation, any explanation almost, on this kind of thing, then it does come to you somewhat more quickly. You can just say, look, possibility for you means that you do... What you do in your universe, but there are versions of you elsewhere in physical reality in other universes, part of the multiverse, which did otherwise, that solves the problem. They're as physically real as you. They do the thing you did not do. That's what possibility means. A thing is possible if it doesn't contradict the laws of physics, and it happens somewhere. But whether something happens a lot in the multiverse or not may well come down to whether it depends upon knowledge creation, because... If that knowledge is created in one part of the multiverse, then it has causal effects on the structure of the multiverse, and it tends to get itself copied by the nature of what it is as knowledge. But where it does not get created, well, nothing quite so dramatic happens in that part of the universe, multiverse, I should say, and therefore nothing dramatic changes in that part of the multiverse because it never happened to cause anything dramatic to happen. Over there, it's where the knowledge isn't created. Then, yeah, you can just talk about the deterministic physical laws explaining the things that come into existence there and what people there know about what's going on as possible perhaps and what people there know of as possible and actual perhaps. But my thing here is that if you're a little confused on this and your thoughts aren't fully coherent, I think it's okay to just say, I don't know <laughs> about what any of this stuff means, but, you know, he's, he's muddling through. This is fair enough. That Jordan Peterson does the same thing all the time, of course. He's just thinking out loud, trying to figure out in real time in front of the audience what he even thinks about this stuff. Okay, that's fine. That's a way to go. All right, let's keep going.
2: I feel like there's a lot of fog around that the possibility. It feels like almost like a useful but, narrative. But
1: what does it mean? So, like... What does it mean, if, if we say, you know, I just did that, but I, mu- I it's conceivable that I wouldn't have done that, right? Like it's possible that I I, I just threw this cap, but right. I might not have done that.
2: So, so you're taking it very temporally close to the original, like what would appear as a decision.
1: Whenever we're saying something's possible, but not actual, right? Like this thing just happened, but it's, conceiv- it's, it's possible that it wouldn't have happened or that it would have happened differently what does that possibility consist like where is that for that to be real for the possibility to be real what
0: are we what claim are we making about the universe what claim are we making about the universe we are making the claim that these other possibilities have actuality but you do not experience those you experience one thing of necessity that's the multiverse problem solved let's go to lunch (sighs) But also, and Sam would be aware of this, I hope, You know, David Lewis, the philosopher, wrote On the Plurality of Worlds, a great book. It's a philosophical treatise. And in it, he's dealing mainly with logically possible other worlds. But the idea with respect to possibility and counterfactuals is the same. Those other worlds exist, and that solves the problem. Now, as a matter of physics, Lewis's idea doesn't solve the problem. For that, you need Everett. But this is all... I would say, easily answered given our modern understanding of quantum theory. What I think it speaks to here is that Sam and Lex seem to be circling, in terms of psychology, what is bad philosophy. They're just unwilling to take the many worlds seriously. The multiverse, quantum theory. Even though it would solve the problem parsimoniously for them here. I mean, it solves lots of problems. All the problems in physics that otherwise would be inexplicable about quantum mechanics. It solves those, and by happy coincidence, or not so much coincidence, it solves this issue of possibility. What is physically possible happens, not with equal measure or proportion, but it does happen somewhere, uh, with proportion according to what the laws of physics say. Sometimes knowledge is going to be needed, or information is needed, in order for a thing to happen reliably and for that structure to grow throughout the multiverse for to become a larger proportion of the multiverse. Knowledge has this causal effect. It's physically possible in some world for Einstein's field equations to have been written in sand by the wind on a beach somewhere or other in ancient Greece. That's a possibility that happened somewhere. But even if Plato himself had come across it, he'd seen those symbols for the field equations, he wouldn't have appreciated it, he wouldn't have understood it. So it wouldn't have counted as knowledge there. Although if Einstein had have been walking along a beach and saw his own field equations there, the day before he wrote them down himself, he would have actually understood them. But here's the key. The knowledge still would need to have been created by him in his mind. He had to interpret what he was seeing in the sand, for example. So instead of interpreting the position of Mercury or movement of light and so on and so forth as he did, then he would have been interpreting sand. But in whatever the case, he's constructing the knowledge himself. He is the causal agent in that case, not random motion of particles. Without him, those squiggles in the sand really are just squiggles in the sand and not symbols and equations of general relativity. A person is required to give symbols
2: meaning. Well, isn't that an extension of the idea that free will is an illusion, that all we have is actuality, that the possibility is an illusion? Right, Uh,
0: yeah, I'm just extending it beyond human action. So if there was only one universe and what you did is what you did, I think you can still have free will according to my conception, but it's far easier, of course, to know that there isn't only one universe, that copies of you actually did do otherwise. What free will is about is about creating the knowledge. And you would still be creating the knowledge even in a single universe picture. It's you. You're the cause of the thing coming into existence. That's the explanation of why explanations come into existence is that people do why? Because they're solving problems. How do they know they've got a problem? It's because they have a problem situation. They have certain feelings and emotions and impulses. And they choose, choose to solve a particular thing or not, in which case, life gets worse. But if they choose and are motivated to be more motivated, then they will solve their problem. Maybe maybe Sam is somehow grappling with this notion of the real existence of other physical realities, namely other parts of the multiverse, this possible. And so if there is the possible in his new conception perhaps, or his, his emerging conception of what reality is, consisting of the possible which is actual then perhaps this is challenging his intuitions about free will. I'm not sure. I can't, of course, uh, get into his mind. He, his main argument, it seems to me, against free will isn't to do with determinism, but rather it's to do with this subjective experience that he thinks he has of not having free will. Okay, so that's different. Ah. Uh, like it's, it's, okay. This
1: goes to the physics of things. This is just everything. Like we're, we're, we're always telling ourselves a story yeah. that includes possibility. Possibility
2: is really compelling for some reason.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, well, because it's, it's. I mean, so this, yeah, I mean, this j- could sound just academic, but it, every backward-looking regret or disappointment and every forward-looking worry is completely dependent on this notion of possibility. Like, every regret is based on the sense that something else, I could have done something else, something else could have happened. Every disposition to worry about the future is based on the feeling that there's this range of possibilities it could go either way and you know I mean I you know whether whether or not there's such a thing as possibility you know I'm convinced that worry is almost never uh, psychologically appropriate because the reality is that in any given moment either you can do something to solve the problem you're worried about or not so if you can do something just do it you know and if you can't your worrying is just causing you to suffer twice over, right? You're gonna, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna get the medical procedure next week anyway. How much time between now and next week do you want to spend worrying about it, right? It's, it's gonna, it's the worry, the worry doesn't accomplish anything.
0: So on that point, I couldn't agree more. Yes, worry and regret are pointless, except insofar as regret could be a motivation to learn from a particular thing that you regret having done. Worry might be giving you information about danger, but if it's a medical procedure, uh, then and you already know about the dangers, then worry is wasted energy. Okay, but yeah, otherwise, I I I, t- I completely agree with this this stance on how to be somewhat more enlightened when encountering difficulties. Let's say, how
2: much do physicists think about possibility?
1: Well, they think about it in terms of probability. <sighs>
0: Well, yeah, we know, <laughs> we know what I think about that. I don't think anyone at the moment thinks more about possibility than the researchers working on constructor theory, than David Deutsch, Cara Maletta, and their colleagues. Constructor theory is the physics of possibility. What can happen? And impossibility, what can't? And they do not think about it in terms of probability. More often, but probability just describes,
1: and again, this is a place where I'm, I might be out of my depth and need to talk to s- somebody to, to uh, debunk this, but
2: the- um, <laughs> do therapy with a physicist.
1: Yeah, um, but probability, it seems, just describes a pattern of actuality that we've observed, right? I mean, we have, there are certain things we observe, and those are the actual things that have happened.
0: Well, that's the frequentalist story, and it's false. You think a coin is fair if you observe that 50% of the time it lands heads and 50% tails. Okay, so do the experiment, and you will find deviations. You'll find that 505 times its heads and 495 times its tails out of 1,000 throws. So that's not exactly 50-50. It's almost never exactly 50-50. It's only approximately so but you still say the probability is one in two. Why? Well, perhaps you say that's a priori by definition, but where does that come from? Well, if you say, if you could toss it an infinite number of times, you'd approach in the limit 50-50, but what does that mean? We're talking about physics here. If you can't physically do the experiment of tossing it an infinite number of times, then how does that apply to physical reality? What does it mean to make claims about physical reality when it relies upon something you can't do physically? It's impossible to do that thing. Toss a coin an infinite number of times and look at the results. Real coins obey quantum mechanical laws and those are not probabilistic. See Deutsch or my video here.
1: And we have this additional story about probability. I mean, is it, we have the frequency with which things happen have happened in the past. Um you know, I I can flip a fair coin and no, I know in the abstract that I have a belief that in the limit uh, those flips, you know, those tosses should converge on 50% heads and 50% tails. I know I have a story as to why it's not going to be exactly 50% within any
0: arbitrary time frame. Um well, to Sam's credit here, that's an excellent exposition of the mainstream view. It's completely false, but you know it's very competent.
1: But in reality, all we ever have are the observed tosses. Right? And then we have an additional story that, oh, it came up heads, but it could have come up tails. Why do we think that, about that last toss? And, and, and what are we claiming is true about the physics of things if we say it could have been otherwise,
2: I think we're claiming that probability is true that it just it it allows us to have a nice model about the world, it gives us hope yeah. about the world,
0: yeah so they need David Deutsch, <laughs> not necessarily in person, just his lecture on probability or my breakdown that would fix this that's the salve that's the treatment for this malady. <laughs> Whatever you want to call it? Now, I could go on with this for ages. It's very, um, very stop-start, though, as you can see, and it, that could get frustrating for the listener and the viewer. Um, they do get to talking about free will again. As I say, I've already engaged with Sam's content on this, and so frequently, and at such depth, that doing so again would just be repeating myself. They talk more about the multiverse. It's confused. They mention that perhaps we're kind of like... NPCs, non-player characters in a big computer game which is again a denial of free will it's their attempt to deny free will but it's also a denial of humanity it's a denial of creativity and agency and how we are special we humans people are special we are special I know Lex is on board with this whole love thing but let's take this even deeper we are special Beings of cosmic significance, the most important entities in the universe, shaping the evolution of the cosmos. For now, locally, just here on the surface of one planet, but eventually everywhere. We make decisions to do so. We create the conditions where new choices can be made. I've been through 10 minutes (laughs) of of the interview here. I think that's enough. That gives you a flavor of where I'm coming from, where they're coming from. The central point I want to end with is that, look, you can have the multiverse, Everettian quantum mechanics. You can have constructor theory and the physics of the science of Can and Cart, what is possible and impossible and what happens and what does not. You can have those explanations of physics and philosophy, or you can just choose to say you don't know and you can be confused and unsure. You can be lost in the mystery and grappling at a folk kind of metaphysics and thinking that you're mind and ignorance about it all and so is everyone else. But we don't need to be. We know something. We have some explanations. We should take those as seriously as we possibly can now to answer the questions we have now. Admit where we're ignorant and where promising avenues of research might be pursued. And this is why, because of exactly this, it's well worth getting on board with constructor theory if you're Someone young, thinking about what area of research you might want to go into, look at constructor theory. It can answer exactly this kind of confusion and these questions and this open-ended kind of meandering through philosophy and physics without being anchored to an explanation. An explanation, a good explanation, allows you to not simply give answers to stuff, but to see what might come next. But if you're still stuck with the old questions and not making progress in the way that has been made by everettian in quantum theory and constructive theory on these issues, then you yourself personally, as a matter of personal growth, won't make any advances. You'll be confused. You don't want to be. You should want to have the best explanations that are out there. But I loved the interview. You know, I spent the four and a half hours listening to it. I should have listened to it on double speed. <laughs> but well worth watching or listening to yourself if you happen to be a fan of Topcast to see the other side because it really is the other side on almost everything. Not that they're irrational. I think they're rational. I think they're using reason. I think they're just wrong about many of their explanations because they have the old explanations. The explanations that that, I would say, pollute the intellectual zeitgeist and haven't allowed us to move beyond a certain kind of stagnation. Happily now, we've got Naval Ravikant, and Tim Ferriss, promoting these ideas of David Deutsch. And they will get out there further, and perhaps more people will be less confused about what the possible and the actual really are, and how so much of this is solved, but there are open-ended questions that can be answered, hopefully one day, by constructor theory. But we need people to take that seriously as well. Until next time, bye-bye.